fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to FGGGBT. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, a physics phenom, Dr. Michael Dennett. Great to be here, Dan. About to talk about, I don't know, probably one of the best movies ever made. Um, this is just amazing. I can't wait to get into it. Best movies ever made. What you, so you said that so definitively, yet you were wishy-washy on Jurassic Park. What's going on there? Well, it was just I forgot Jurassic Park, Dan. <laughs> that was the problem. But this is just there, there is something about the combination of cartoons and real people in this one that I just absolutely love. Now, be careful. I didn't say it is the best movie ever made, but it's up there. I completely agree with you. I, I could not agree more. And hopefully we will find agreement in our third party member here. And that is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? This week, I'm in a very ominous warehouse full of all sorts of scary machinery and an overwhelming scent of paint thinner. <laughs> well, be careful there. You might want to open up a window, get a little ventilation going on in there, or we might not have you for the rest of the episode. And we need you for this one because we're talking about Roger Rabbit. And this, for those of you who haven't seen this movie, shame on you. This is a great movie. You should go watch it right now. But I'm going to explain it briefly. It's about a gumshoe who's trying to clear the name of a cartoon rabbit who's been accused of murder. Now, one of the things I want to mention right off the bat here, something that's often overlooked when it comes to Roger Rabbit, and that is Roger Rabbit. Rabbit is from a science lab. Do you think that that has added to his intelligence, or is that why he sometimes sticks a nail file through his ears to scratch his brain? What do you think about that, Denon? Well, it makes me think that he may be a mixture, again, reference to earlier episode, of Pinky and the brain. He may be both the genius and insane at the same time. I'm just going to go there, Dan. I, you know, I have to go back to our Jurassic Park uh, episode and think, you know, Roger Rabbit is what he was engineered to be by the scientists who created him. Whether he's a genius or insane or somewhere in between, uh, you know, he is what he was made. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't disagree with that. He is what he was made, I think, is exactly right. I mean, he really, I mean, I love Roger Rabbit. I was actually surprised that he wasn't in more movies. I thought he was a great character. And, and I love the whole structure of this movie. I love the film noir. I mean, and I also love, I mean, you guys are all fellow Angelinos. I love the subplot of killing public transportation and building highways over certain neighborhoods. Did any of these themes particularly resonate with you or with the film noir or anything? I know, Denon, you love this movie right off the bat you think it's one of the greatest of all time is because of any of those reasons actually dan those are all good reasons i'm not like minimizing them or underrating them i don't know what the right english word is here but for me the top reason was my love of animated characters both looney tune and disney the fact that they brought those together is one of the reasons i fell in love with this movie right away i attribute it to the power of spielberg but i'm not a master of film and tv like you dan you might know what really was able to bring these together but that was my love those animated characters i mean i think it's a good question i don't know what brought them all together i don't know the confluence of of events that brought about the all of these brilliant characters i mean across this is a love letter to the cartoon industry i mean if you look at the the voice voiceover actors that are in this. I mean, these are some of the last movies, the last movies some of these guys did, and it's 
I mean, it's all encapsulated in this movie. It's done so well. I couldn't agree with you more, Denon. Uh, ben, I know you love animation. Was there anything in particular about this movie that you really liked? Like Denon, I really liked that they were able to bring together all these disparate universes into a single movie. But I also got to love the the little political twinge. You know, I, I too don't, I'm not, a, I'm a huge fan of public transit and the current expansion of the uh, Los Angeles uh, metro system is a big, uh, big thing to me. And I, I like this story that kind of satirizes what we used to have and how it got very cynically destroyed. Yeah, it was the greatest public transportation system in the world. People forget that. And now we're rebuilding it over things we've already... I mean, it's insane what's going on in LA. But that aside, you know, I mean, that is chaos theory in my mind. But we talked about that in a different episode. We can't get into that here as well. But what we can get into is cartoon physics and its interaction with real physics. This is the true gem of this movie. And I think we have to start with something we all know, which is regular physics. You know, correct me if I'm wrong here, Denon, but, you know, because of the mass of the earth, gravity works as expected, which includes momentum, velocity, the way objects interact. You know, these all seem to run the course as as Newton uh, really predicted. Now, most people are familiar with these laws. Everybody obeys them on a daily basis. Do you think the accuracy was there with regular physics? You know, in this movie, it, it because you focus so much on the contrast between cartoon physics and the real world, you know, I'll we don't see a lot of the violations of real world physics that you sometimes get in fantastical movies. So the real world here is pretty accurate. Um, as you said, we're all used to Newtonian physics, how you know momentum works, how forces impact us. We also are getting more and more familiar with the quantum world and general relativity. And we talk about those a lot in our show. So the basic elements of real physics, they come through when there's no cartoon characters around. The cartoon characters, they really change things for us. And I think that's the exciting part that we're going to talk about today. So on previous episodes, we've discussed cartoon physics. I'm going to put some links to those in the bottom so you can catch up. Watch those in their entirety. I highly recommend it. But in brief, there's two real schools of thought on, on cartoon physics. And the first one, you know, classic characters. We got Bugs Bunny. We got the Roadrunner, your Looney Tunes characters. They really follow what I call Looney Tunian physics. Now, how do the physical rules of Looney Tunian physics differ from our physical reality, the ones that we, and by we I mean humans, follow? Well, Dan, what you're really looking at here is the Coyote and the Roadrunner are the best example of this. Um, They're often chasing each other. They often end up way above ground, maybe on the underside of a cliff. Maybe a cliff disappears. And we all know that until you look, you don't fall. And that is the classic definition of quantum gravity. Until you observe gravity, it's not turned on. So that's the key first one. The second one, again, Roadrunner, great example of it. We call it zip. Roadrunner can run super fast, faster than you would accept expect, sorry, not accept, expect a normal bird to run. And so it's that super speed that really comes into it. So those are two of the main physics laws that you see in Looney Tunian physics. So those are the physical properties, the gravity and the acceleration, but there's also some biological properties. We see one with dynamite only making you dirty. Uh, Looney Tunian uh, biology allows you to survive an explosion and only get dusty and dirty. Um, And then we see the other one, which is the extreme resilience in the body. Uh, You know, the roadrunner, or or not the the roadrunner is always fine. The coyote will fall off uh, a cliff and, you know, become a pancake or something like that. And he'll reinflate himself or, 
you know, all these other things where your body is stretchy and can be uh, reshaped uh, without any harm to your internal organs. No, and I think that that's great. And in this movie, you know, we see quantum gravity in Toontown. You know, we see that invulnerability that you're talking about, Ben, in the beginning opening sequence where a fridge is dropped on Roger's head. Um, he also gets, you know, whacked in the head with with a fry. He also whacks himself in the head with a frying pan and sees different things. Um, you know, we also see Zip where he blasts through R.K. Maroon's office and leaves that little silhouette. So he does experience some of these Looney Tunian physics, which is also really interesting. But there's another side. You know, other cartoon characters like Tom and Jerry, Scooby-Doo. Now, they seem to follow a different set of cartoon laws, and I call them the Hanna-Barbarian physics. And this is a little bit different, both from Looney Tunian and from our regular physics. How would you explain this, Denon? Well, you know, what you want to look at here is a classic example of Tom and Jerry. You know, Jerry causing pain in Tom, maybe by biting his tail, and Tom accelerates upward violating our normal laws of gravity as we would see them. But then on the way down, something also weird happens. You know, Jerry might put a knife there and the fear that Tom then experiences causes him to stop. Again, gravity doing something strange. Now, this is different than Luditunian gravity, which is quantum. We discovered in our episode, and our viewers should go back and watch it, that this was due to emotions and the newly discovered particle, the emoditon. So that was the key physical element in Hanna-Barbarian physics. We also see some biological uh, Hanna-Barbarian physics rules, especially that are sim similar to the pancaking where we see Jerry eating a big, big old slice of cheese and he takes on that shape of cheese. But we also see instances where Tom gets stretched and becomes very rubber band like where his body uh, just stretches out and he slingshots around and things like that. No, I think that's important. You know, one of my favorite scenes is where they use his whiskers as a as a guitar string, and <laughs> or or when when Spike actually uses Tom's whole body as a guitar string. Lots of guitar stuff. I just realized. But in Roger Rabbit, there's some fun examples because you know Roger acts like a rubber band when he's pulled as well. And there's also this crazy scene where he drinks alcohol um, or hot sauce, and he turns into this gigantic whistle. He shoots skyward and you know basically defies gravity as he turns into a whistle. So he's operating under these set of physical laws as well. The real interesting thing here is the interaction between what we're going to call live action, the biologically live action and the biologically cartoon, when those physical laws kick in for those live action characters. You know, we discussed this, when we discussed this interaction, we're talking about Toontown. You know, we've got a live action car that goes into Toontown, but it now operates under the cartoon physical laws. I mean, this is pretty exciting. And I think there's some really fun examples. Denon, where did you see some of these, these um, interactions really interesting you? So, Dan, I think Toontown is a great example of where interactions occur, and I have some favorites there. I also like some of the interactions in the real world, but I'm going to stick with Toontown for now. Um, and I think my favorite is the elevator. And the elevator is a good one because you've got the detective in the ele elevator, and he's having kind of both Hanna-Barbarian gravity, where his scared and emotions are causing him to go to the top and bottom of the elevator in ways we just never do. But he's also got the pancake effects from Looney Tune. When he hits the top or bottom, he's getting really flat. And so now you've got an intersection of a real-world character with two different types of cartoon physics. So I think that's fascinating to me. Now, I think there's also some cool stuff in the real world. And I know, Ben, I feel like you were more fascinated by the real world than Toontown. Yeah, I think for me, actually, one of the, one of the funniest scenes for me was when they're at the murder scene uh, at, in the Acme factory. And you have all these 
uh, chucklehead cops uh, messing around with the various Acme equipment they're finding. You know, they they take out the the punching bag gun and are sma- you know are hitting each other and you know they're flying all over the place and they're still okay. So you have this interesting mix of you know they take on the cartoon physics of being able to fly across a room when they're hit with a punching bat with a punching uh, glove, but then they're okay and they get that invulnerability of the cartoon world kind of rubs off on them. Now, I think one of my favorite parts is when you've got Daffy and Donald Duck and they're dueling pianos. And, you know, Daffy, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Donald Duck pulls out a cannon from inside of the piano and shoots it at Daffy Duck. They're in the middle of a nightclub that's mostly populated by live action humans. And the cannon still shoots a cannonball through a real live piano. And so you see this interaction between cartoon and live action that I think is just fascinating. And one of the other ones that we have to talk about, because I think this is, is critical here is at the end of the movie when when um, Eddie is putting on a show to to make all of the cartoons laugh he has got he's operating under cartoon physics there as well he jumps out of a pogo stick that seems to that seems to operate under cartoon physics you know he gets electrocuted he gets hit with an, an anvil arm and goes flying through and gains that invulnerability um, you know these are some really interesting effects here. And so it begs the question, in the real world, Roger Rabbit still is governed by cartoon physics, and only humans seem to be the ones that can kind of go either way. They they really follow different laws at different times. And the question is, why? And so I want to postulate this. You know, as I mentioned, we got the biologically cartoon, we've got the biologically live action. I, it seems to me as an outside observer that these biologically cartoon critters are really have almost a field around them that objects that interact with that field now gain this new set of cartoon physical laws. I don't know. That's how it looks to me. Does that hold up, Denon? Well, Dan, I think that's definitely the starting point, right? We notice, as you have so astutely analyzed as the analytical mastermind, that people only get cartoon-like behavior when interacting with a cartoon character. And in fact, what's really cool, it's not just people, it's the inanimate objects. We know that Roger Rabbit goes through a window and leaves his shape behind in a real-world window. That should not happen. Basic material science would say that glass shatters. And so what I think it is, it's, it's kind of not so much the physics changing But we realize we have to unify and bring together cartoon physics with real-life physics. And we find that all the time in just regular physics, where you have things like, oh, electricity and magnetism and protons and electrons are uh, attracting or repelling each other, depending on what's interacting with what. But the atom still somehow stays together in the way it does because protons and neutrons interact under different laws than protons and electrons. So I think here what we have to understand is cartoons interacting with cartoons, people interacting with people, and the cartoon people interaction. And what is that force, that field, that interaction? So it's not so much that our physics change, but there's a new interaction that leads to different results. That's the direction I'm heading in, Dan. That's right, Dan. It's really clear that the 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 physics of the real world and the physics of the cartoon world are both interacting and kind of rubbing off on each other. Like we see, like we see with all these examples we've talked about, you know, there's this very strangeness where the invulnerability of a cartoon somehow is bestowed upon the normal humans in this world. You know, there's no way that any of these people should be able to really hang with 
with the cartoons. They should be just getting annihilated by these cartoons, right? You, you shouldn't be able to get hit by a big old mallet or zapped with a cartoon hand buzzer. Like these things to a cartoon create such enormous effects that should be lethal or at least very, very injurious. And yet somehow the people make it through okay. So what I think's going on here, Dan, is the existence of a new particle. We already saw that in Hanna-Barbera physics where we had the emoticon. And I think here what we're realizing is that people who came up with the word cartoon were very smart but mispronounced it. It's the cartoon on. Um, and I almost mispronounced it there. <laughs> I want to say it nice and clear for the audience. The cartoon yeah. on. Um, and, and really, it's particles that interact in this interesting way. Humans apparently can absorb these and gain properties governed by the cartoon. But there's nothing that we give off that cartoons absorb that make them people-like or real-world physics-like. So it's a one-way path, which is really fascinating to me. And I'm waiting to get some cartoons so I become so I can speak clearly, um, <laughs> but more so I can become invulnerable. Uh, I mean, that was a great Porky Pig impression there, Denon. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that we have to think about with this cartoon is I want to figure out how does Toontown exist next to Los Angeles? I mean, there's this, you know, there it's right in the factory. There seems to be this brick wall that separates Toontown from L.A. Is that consistent with this model of physics? It definitely is, Dan, because what we know Particles and waves are two sides of the same coin. If you've got a particle, there's a corresponding field and wave. And the question is the range and the impacts. If I have a single cartoon person out in the real world, it's clear the range is kind of short range, right? It's not like every human suddenly becomes like a cartoon. It's only the ones you're interacting with closely. But if I put a lot of cartoons together, I can build up some positive interference, um, constructive interference, as we've talked about with quantum waves in many of our past episodes. And particularly, if I put some cool reflecting walls that reflect the cartoon on, then suddenly you can build up an extra resonance, something else we've talked about, and make an entire world governed by these with this whole background field of cartoonish. That's where I'm going with it. I, there's an interesting engineering design is, what would you make these reflective walls out? And Ben, I'm not sure, but do you have any idea how to make these reflective walls or did they just get lucky? Boy, that, that's an interesting thing. You know, I, I immediately think about electromagnetism, which is the long distance force that we're most, you know, most people are most familiar with. You know, the electromagnetic uh, forces are what govern basically everything. You know, the, your sense of touch is entirely through that force. And so in my mind, I, you know, I think of the cartoon characters as, you know, permanent uh, cartoons where they're giving off these cartoons constantly and the normal world somehow, you know, re, uh, can interact with those cartoons, but it doesn't give them off. So, you know, we're, we're the ferrous metal like iron that isn't, can't, isn't magnetized, but can be affected by magnetic fields. Yeah. We, we can reflect electronic electromagnetic waves through mirrors with light and we can certainly redirect them with uh, metallic, with, say, Faraday cages where we can absorb them and ground out that electromagnetic energy. So I think a combinate we've somehow f this brick wall that contains Toontown somehow, you know, maybe just bricks. You know, bricks are a very common theme in cartoons in kind of 
grounding them out, you know, you get hit with a big old pile of bricks and you kind of stop being funny for a minute. You know, maybe those bricks are uh, naturally uh, can kind of cancel out and clear uh, attenuate these uh, cartoon waves. Well, I think that that's important because, you know, I think when you're talking about how the cartoons affect, you know, real world material science, it's important because one of the other things that once we've discussed the interaction and we've defined the interaction, the other thing is these items, right? There are cart. There's not just cartoon people that are affecting this. There's a cartoon items that seem to, to harness this, uh, this science as well. You know, one we've already talked about before that makes a great appearance in this movie, and that's the portable hole. And I think, you know, Denon, I think some of the science that we talked about in the portable holes, we might have to reconsider under this new under this new umbrella of cartoon physics. Definitely, Dan. I think where we have to, you know, the basic physics of how it behaves in the cartoon world, I think we got right. I'm not worried about that. But this cartoon and how it interacts with the real world really becomes interesting because what we see is some really nice control and use of the portable holes for fun stuff, like grabbing them and using them to get out of a magnet. This is a very interesting move on my part. Um, not my part, well, sorry, on the character's <laughs> part. <laughs> right. uh, it's, a, it, you know, it's an interesting move in my mind, you know, the way I'm thinking about it. Um, and so it really shows. Now, it was a, a human interacting with a cartoon thing that then interacted with a cartoon magnet. Um, so there's a lot going on there that we need to sort of pull apart. And I'm really curious, you know, Ben, do you see some interesting engineering um, implications, designs, or features from the fact that we're now using items like a portable hole and interacting with humans with them? I really love the kind of puzzle-solving capability that this portable hole grants Eddie. You know, he, he's stuck in this magnet and he's like, how do I get out of this? And he grabs the portable hole and kind of chucks out the middle of the magnet by using the portable hole to, to cut it. But then I have to ask myself, how do you even then grab the portable hole? If like everything it touches kind of gets sucked into this other side nature, like how do you how do you grab it? Like if it has a rim that you can grab, then it shouldn't be able to cut the magnet. <laughs> so I wonder there, Dan, I'm going to go to you with this as the analytical mastermind. Um, Ben's comment just made me realize something. I don't think the portable hole, interestingly enough, ever cuts any real physics matter, um, this, which may give us some deeper insights into the cartoon on. It, it may give people cartoon-like properties, but all of the cartoon properties it has may not interact with the person. So is it only working because it's a cartoon magnet and it really is safe just to hold as a human? Um, what do you think about that, Dan? I'm real curious. Well, I think that that's a great observation. So let's look at a couple of the applications of the portable hole. You know, when, when the cops are, are look, taking a look at the maroon uh, warehouse, they pull one out and he says, hey, you seen one of these? And he throws it against the real physical wall and it sticks, right? Now, the question is, he so and he, and he puts his arm into it and is able to retrieve his, his you know, human live-action arm, and it doesn't appear to have anything wrong with it. Now, my question is really, where does this portable hole go? Because it's not going through the object, and as you, know, as you mentioned, when he interacts with that cartoon magnet, where does the centerpiece of that magnet go? It ends up somewhere else, right? But I think you raise an interesting question. I... In my estimation, for as much as I've seen and my expertise on portable holes, which is extensive, by the way, cartoon physics is kind of my thing, I really think you're making a great distinction here and that these portable holes interact with cartoon objects very differently than they interact 
with physical live action matter. And I think there is a difference, and I do believe that maybe it is the portable hole is unique in that it doesn't necessarily give the objects that are the live action objects close to it any sort of cartoon properties. That is what I think when I see that. I don't know if that kind of works with the engineering on that. Well, I, I like it, Dan, because what it means is the portable hole doesn't grant any cartoon-like properties, but it retains its own. And that's why your arm can go through the hole safely for going into the middle, because that's just about the hole's property, not your arm. Whereas you can hold it safely because you're not actually interacting it with it like a cartoon object. You are not turning into something weird. I don't know. It's a bit of a stretch, but maybe that's what's going on here. I like your suggestion. In some ways, it makes me think that the portable hole may be the Faraday cage of the cartoon world, where it's able to kind of absorb uh, these cartoons and create this cool effect, but it doesn't, it's not imparting, but as we see, it's not imparting cartoon funness like some of the other things do. You know, I think I love that chemical property because as I was touring one of the Manhattan Project sites, which is part of our national park system, one of the things inside of a nuclear reaction to make sure that it doesn't get out of control is they release boron, which absorbs the neutron so that this so that, uh, you know, a, a nuclear reaction doesn't get out of control. And I wonder if this portable hole doesn't have some sort of, you know, cartoon absorbing properties that are similar so that we don't have a cartoon nuclear reaction. I don't know if that works at all dead in but i loved what ben said there yeah no and i love where you went with that dan this is a very interesting thing i think we could just spend hours on the portable hole and we probably have so <laughs> even more to discuss here which is great yeah well then let, so let's talk about the uh the disappearing ink which is another great thing here because you know this is something that maroon shoots on eddie valiant and then it appears and then disappears and then appears and later we see it on you know on on paper as well but this idea of a disappearing ink that can actually go away and then come back and go away and come back on fabric. I thought this was kind of fascinating. Is there any, are there any physical or chemical properties that would make this possible? Well, Dan, it first made me think of the lemon juice invisible ink I made as a kid, where you write with lemon juice, you can't see it. And then when you heat it up, you can see it. Um, but they're not letting anything on fire in this movie. Probably the only shortcoming in the movie is that there's no major fire. My other favorite thing besides animation. Um, but you know, it does raise an interesting question in my mind. Um, how does it stay ink if it dries? I think you raise some big questions here. I think, you know, to me, this is a fundamentally an engineering design problem. Um, so I'm going to turn it to Ben now that I've actually revealed my love of fire and lemon um, juice invisible ink. I immediately think of the chemical clock or chemi chemical oscillator experiment that a lot of us see in, uh, in chemistry class where... You have these two chemicals that you mix in a beaker and it and it oscillates back and forth uh, between multiple colors um, on a very strict schedule. And so you have this chemical that can now change from one color to another. You combine that with a shirt, you know, if you get the right background colors to match your shirt or your paper, and now you have this ink that uh, will come become visible and invisible on a set schedule. Uh, no must, no fuss. You know, Ben, I think that's absolutely brilliant, um, but I'm going to take you one farther. It can oscillate between a color and no color because color is just the electromagnetic spectrum you reflect. 
um, and everything else you absorb, you could obviously make the other color just somewhere else in the electromagnetic spectrum that we don't see, and suddenly you have invisible ink. So I'm very excited about this, Dan. I think this is a, an excellent way to go. I'm, I'm with Ben on this, all in. Well, so let me ask you about this oscillation. So then would that mean that you could not predict the final outcome? And if someone shoots you with this invisible ink, you could actually end up with a stained shirt? Is that what I'm hearing here? I, I definitely, Dan, and I think that's what makes it even funnier because you don't know what state your shirt's gonna be in. It starts stained, you're mad, it goes away, you're happy. Sometime later it comes back, you're mad again. It goes away again. You're happy, you know, and the oscillation will go as long as the reaction is able to drive itself. Um, I do wonder about, again, being on the shirt. I mean, probably needs some moisture, some liquid around, but maybe not. Maybe it's a dry chemical reaction, but this is just becoming funnier the more I think about it. What sounds funny to me, and it is when we're talking about chemical reactions, you know, one of the last things we got, we got to talk about, which is not funny at all if you're a cartoon, but definitely does have some some incredible chemistry, and that's the dip. You know, this is a concoction that, that um, you know, uh, Professor Doom, I always want to call him Dr. Doom, um, but Judge Doom, it's actually Judge Doom. I, one of those, it's not Judge Dredd, it's not Professor Octopus, it's not, it is Judge Doom comes up with this great substance called the dip. It's made of acetone, benzene, and turpentine. This can dissolve a cartoon. This was really scary, especially if you're a cartoon, but I feel like this has some properties that are possible in the real world. Um, ben, I know that this is kind of your expertise here, not killing cartoons, but some of these chemicals. What did you see here? Yeah, so acetone and turpentine are straight up just ink removers. You know, turpentine is what you use for oil paint thinner. Acetone is nail polish remover. You know, both of these things are very good are just the perfect thing to remove inks and lacquers. And then benzene is a just an industrial chemical that's often used in the creation of these chemicals. But benzene is also just a horrible carcinogen. So I have to wonder, like, you know, you see Eddie, you know, kind of splashing around in this stuff. And that would not be the case. This, this this stuff would be very harmful to the humans in the room, just as it is to the cartoons. Well, I, I wonder, Ben, I, I'm going to just like push you a little on that. Is it really going to harm him right away? Or is this really long-term cancer effects we're looking at? Because I don't think it's, I could be wrong. I don't think it's corrosive. So splashing around, he kind of just gets wet and doesn't realize he's dying slowly of cancer. Is that is that more accurate? Is that what you're really telling us? That's that's true to some degree. Certainly his shoes would almost certainly be ruined, which, I mean, that's a tragedy in itself. But yeah, he, he pr almost certainly increases risk of cancer, but there's also a good chance you just kind of pass out from the fumes and then fall and maybe drown or poison yourself. Well, that's why I like that the water sprayed and clearing it out pretty quickly. I mean, it's not yeah. like he takes a bath in the stuff. He, he does get the um, water open and washes it out. So I'm feeling a little safer. It does remind me of all the chemical safety showers that are around our, our labs, where if there's a spill, you run out into the hall or run to your nearest chemical safety shower and just spray water all over yourself. So spraying water is clearly the solution to chemical spills, Dan. I'm just going on record there. Yeah, the, the solution to pollution is always dilution, as the uh, as the saying goes. Well, you know, I, I don't know about that, but I, I'm going to agree with it. But one of the things that I did think about is, you know, this dissolves cartoon biology, almost, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark-esque. And I wonder if you became partially dissolved as a cartoon, you know, would would you be able to survive that? You know, we see um, Benny, the, the taxi uh, kind of rolls over a, a whole spill of this and his tires go flat. But I wonder if you're able to dissolve. I imagine it's just like dissolving, you know, live action biology. Um, but I do, I think it's great. This is, you know, this is a concoction that is designed to 
to remove inks, paints, and polishes, perfect for killing animation, almost diabolical in its ingenious uh, nature. And, and I, you know, it, it's scary, but also you have to kind of marvel at its brilliance. And since we've explained the dip, I think we've arrived at our errors, additions, and omissions section, things we want to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. Denon, did we, did we miss anything that you wanted to talk about? Well, well, Dan, there was the one thing you did allude at the beginning, how we're all kind of from the L.A. area and get this very well. And, and I am from this area now. But I will like to point out, when I first watched this film, I was still from the East Coast um, and did not understand the subtle nature of cars in L.A. I found it funny. But when I moved here and watched it again, I found it even funnier. Um, this whole idea of like actually thinking that no one would ever drive a car and then you see what L.A. turns into in terms of a parking lot of, of traffic jams really brings the humor level up if you live in the local area. That was my one main error in addition here is it's just the change of humor, how contextual it can be, Dan, and life experience based. <laughs> I think that's true. If anything, this movie, may, it's, it makes you think about what's really going on. What was the history of Los Angeles and did these cartoons exist? Um, you know, that's what it made me think of, of Denon. But I love the fact that it's keeping you thinking. Um, what about you? Ben, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, along the lines of Dent, I just love this kind of political commentary. And I also just love the the kind of uh, creativity and stick to that Eddie has. You know, he's trying to solve this. He's barely getting paid, you know, and I and I really just love the scene when he's trying to get downtown and the, the red car operator won't let him on because he doesn't have fare. And so he just hops on the back with the other kids <laughs> And, you know, and rides the trolley just like, you know, everybody would have done back then. Hopefully we'll get back to a time like that, Ben. We're not there now, but I feel like we're going in that direction. So some of the things that I liked from this movie is definitely that opening sequence where they're filming that cartoon. You know, we see a stove. There's lots of hidden little things. We see a stove that's labeled Hotter in Hell. That's the brand name. And we see a plunger that sticks to Roger's face, uh, you know, almost inexplicably. But in our Goonies episode, you know, some of the we discussed some of the plunger stuff. And maybe it was a fast-drying epoxy like what Data uses for his inventions. And, of course, there's a woman that we see only from the waist down and when she steps off set you realize that it's operated by someone on stilts operating these legs with this big dress uh, just a brilliant way to combine filmmaking the 40s and cartoons and humans just a great way to do that um, so if we've missed anything that you want to talk about you can get in touch with us on social media the show is on twitter at ftriplegbtpod we're on facebook at ftriplegbt but you can get in touch with us individually Denon where can people find you Dan, they can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just reverse my name. It's at Den and Michael. And if you really need to find me on Facebook, you just stick in a prof at Prof Den and Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at The Daniel J. Glenn. So remember, like every episode that we do, this podcast contains powerful scientific information that should not be abused. You always want to be a superhero and not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? 
We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.